Good. I'd like to ask for your attention for a few considerations on practice, the path, and um, specifically the hindrances. Yeah. We've all been sitting for a couple of days, and that generally means we have made personal acquaintance with uh, some of those hindrances and uh, their territory. Um, Maybe you're beginning to discern a pattern here. One of the privileges of being three teachers is that we can play games on you. So we've decided on a good cop, bad cop routine. Chris <laughs> Christina gives you joy and metta, and John and I give you suffering and hindrances. There is uh, buried somewhere in the Samyutta Nikaya a little story which is one of the um, analogies about these hindrances and the story runs like this. It says, uh, this is in Savati, this is a place where the Buddha spent many, many of his uh, monsoon seasons and uh, we are told that uh, a Brahman is coming up to him and uh, asks him, his name is Sangharava and he asks the Buddha, why is it that on some days I cannot remember what I have learned by heart very well and exhaustively? Yeah? So Brahmins learn mantras and to have mantras at your fingertips you need to rehearse them. And obviously what you have rehearsed more generally you have more easily access to. So there are days when I cannot even remember the things I have well rehearsed, yeah? let alone the things I have not rehearsed. And yet there are other days when I can even remember the things I haven't properly rehearsed, yeah? and all the more the ones I have well rehearsed. How come? What is the reason that this is the case? And then the Buddha says, well, this is because of the hindrances. And he uh, proceeds to outline some of these hindrances. These hindrances are not specific to meditation practice, as Christina pointed out two days ago. Um, hindrances are things that occur in our lives. I would like, nevertheless, to look at them specifically, how they manifest in meditation practice, because sometimes we do not recognize what is actually taking place under the names these hindrances have. They are quickly named. Kamachanda is sense desire, Vyapada is ill will, Tinamida is... Uh, Torpor, sleepiness and drowsiness. Um, Udacha is restlessness. Kukucha is agitation. And Vichikicha is doubt. Now, how does this look you know, in our meditation? That will be one uh, alley I would like to explore with you tonight. The other one is uh, the sort of the phenomenology of these hindrances, how this can, how this can uh, feel when we're in it. It's easy to talk about something, yeah? but when we're actually in it, sometimes we lose some of the perspective. If you've ever done some climbing, you recognize that if you're at the bottom of the rock face and you're looking up and you can see the route quite clearly, you know, there's this kind of ledge and then there's a crevice and then there's a little bank and then you do that scree field and then it's over there to the left. Well, as soon as you're in there, you know, things look very different. You know, A, that clarity, you know, the overview, the perspective, all this is gone. 
and you're kind of clambering. And basically, you don't know whether this is the right crevice or the wrong one. You don't know whether this is the first or the second scree field. You're in it, and you just trust, basically, that this works out. And if it does, fine. If it doesn't, you have to clamber back in some way. So the Buddha continues in his analogy, and he says, imagine there is a man trying to find self-knowledge and trying to find something to see the mirror image of his face, looking for water to reflect his own face in it, yeah? so that he could recognize his own face. Beautiful image for self-knowledge. Couldn't be more Jungian than that, actually. <laughs> so a man seeking to gain self-knowledge by finding something that reflects his face properly. And this man would find, in turn, a vessel with water that is dyed, a vessel with water that is boiling and throws bubbles, a vessel with water that is covered over with mud, covered over with moss, a vessel with water that is whipped up and eddied, a vessel with water that is troubled, muddied, or in a dark spot. Yeah, these are the analogies of the Buddha for, um, in turn, sense desire equated with colored water. You do recognize something. Yeah? There is some semblance of truth in there, but it is completely discolored what you meet. There's also a pun in there, because the, the word for coloring in Pali language is... Uh, Rajati, which means reddened, which is also the same word for impassioned. Yeah? So if you're impassioned, then things do look slightly different. We all know that from personal experience. Under the influence of passion, things seem to take on a life of their own. Yeah? Certain editorial processes seem to take place when we are looking at things with passion. Partly we screen out things and partly we construe things. We all know that's one of the kicks of passion. That it, does uh, take the edge of sobriety or takes away some of the, um, the realism of things. So our man looking to find self-knowledge by reflecting his own face, his own being, finds uh, colored water and obviously comes uh, into a situation where, quote, um, he does not recognize his own benefit. The Buddha literally says, well, Brahman, when one dwells with a heart possessed and overwhelmed by sense desires, one does not know, as it really is, the way of escape. From, and one does not know the way, as it really is, the way of escape from sense desires that have arisen, then one cannot know or see, as it really is, what is to one's own benefit, nor can one know or see what it is to the benefit of others or to the benefit of both. So, statement very simple, under the influence of sense desire, we cannot recognize our own face, obviously, and we do not find what is helpful, we do not find what is helpful for ourselves, for others, or for both. And then this uh, phrase is repeated for all five of the uh, hindrances. So, how do these hindrances affect us? In if we look at them very soberly as meditation phenomena, these hindrances are thought. Yeah? Three and a half of those five hindrances are basically thought. Yeah? When you sit here quietly with angelic faces, yeah? 
then the hindrance of sense desire has something to do with thinking. It has something to do with remembering. It has something to do with planning, with fantasizing, with conceiving. So the term desire, John broached it yesterday, has uh, many shades. Let me do a little footnote here. The first form of desire is very straightforward. It is, uh, as it is in this text, it is desire that focuses on experience we have with our five outer senses, which is easily understood. Yeah, nobody disagrees with that. But it is also desire that has to do with our sixth sense, manas, yeah, our mind. Now that mind has objects, as my tongue has as object uh, tastes and chooses and um, gustatory uh, objects. My mind has as objects thoughts, images, memories, concepts. Yeah. So in Buddhist teaching, Buddhist psychology, we have six sense realms. And one of the functions of mind, not the only one, but one of the functions of mind is that it is a sense base. So this sense base comes into play when we sit here and are under the uh, influence of sense desire. We have thoughts. Thoughts that tell us of pleasant things that are, have either already happened or that will happen. Yeah. These are harmless things. Yeah. Most of these, most of sense desires is pretty much, you know, it's inane. It doesn't sound very immoral. Yeah. You think of something that gives you a pleasant feeling and then you try to prolong that thought a little bit so that thereby you prolong the pleasant feeling a little bit. That is sense desire. Doesn't sound like that. Yeah? Desire sounds bigger, isn't it? Sounds really sort of lustful. And yet, um, Buddhist psychology is a lot more accurate in this. It acknowledges that we have a lot of investment in seeking pleasant state. Technically, in seeking Sukhavedana, the stuff you have been watching today. Yeah? Pleasant, hedonic tone in our experience. So there is something in us quite overtly geared to seek pleasant experiences. Yeah. There's a kind of scanning type of awareness in us that looks, where, where is something going here? Yeah. With whom could I sit? Which corner is the nicest? Where, is, where are the cookies offered? You know, who, you know. Something kind of continually screening and scanning. Where do I going to dedicate my precious attention to? Yeah. Where can I rest it? And if that succeeds, then obviously we have gratified desire. We feel good. Generally, when satiated, yeah, we feel at least momentarily quite happy. We're quite pleased. We're feeling good. There's maybe some joy associated with that. Problem is it doesn't last very long. Yeah? It needs continual feeding, this type of mind. So sense desire is a problem because it preoccupies our attention. If we want to stay happy or stay joyful via gratified sense desire, we have a lot of work to do. Yeah? And even if we succeed um, at providing the gratification, we actually notice that um, there are kind of nasty things applying, the law of diminishing returns. You know? We need to heighten the dosage, for example, or we need to alternate because we, we don't have the same gratification response with a steady stimulus, for example. Yeah? So we need to either kind of increase the volume 
or kind of alternate to little moments of fasting and then feasting again, yeah, so. But you understand the principle. Sense desire is something that governs much of our attentional economy. The seeking of gratification and correspondingly the avoidance of that which is unpleasant. That's the other side of the story. We screen out. I have lots of attention for things that I like and I have very little attention for things I don't like. My first response if something I don't like occurs is I try to screen it out. Yeah? I try to not be there for it. So there's a continual, any honest self-observation when you meditate and when you look at what your attention actually does, if you just let it drift, yeah? it, will, it will bring you to the conclusion that there is a continual seeking process going on. Now, I'm not speaking in terms of morals. You know? Please be clear. This is not about morals. It's about trying to still the mind because we have found that when the mind is still, it understands better. It is capable of transformations that it is not capable of. It is angry or busy. So it is of great interest that we learn how to still the mind. And one thing that stops the mind from becoming still, moral or not, is desire and seeking gratification for desire because it simply keeps the wheel spinning. Yeah? What in terms of ethics is absolutely harmless, in terms of samadhi, in terms of calm of mind, is disastrous. So when you sit here, uh, you know, remembering your last holidays and basking in the afterglow of those uh, feelings that come up, uh, then that sounds harmless enough, you know. Who, who would object to that? It's fair enough. You know, you've been there. It doesn't cost anything. It doesn't harm anybody. You know, it's not violent. It's not abusive. So why not do this? You know, you can pass there after a meal, sit on one's cushion. And just kind of, you know, glow a little bit in the warmth of a pleasant memory. Yeah? There's nothing really bad about this. Um, the only disadvantage is it stops your mind from becoming quiet. It's, it gently stimulates activity, discursive activity, and if you want to keep that going, you will need to think. And if you keep thinking, and you keep investing in thought, and you keep trying to chew them a little longer, or you know, then the mind will not become still. Yeah. So in terms of samatha, this is quite disastrous, sense desire. And it needs a continual giving up of the possibility of pondering things that give you pleasant, warm feelings. Yeah. The second type of desire is bhava-tanha, which is a little more complicated. It has to do with becoming. Bhava-tanha takes a position that says, as things are right now, is not enough. Yeah. We need more of this. We need more more precision, more quality, more control, more diversity, more intensity, more volume, more color. Yeah? It takes, it's a continual position that states whatever I experience and where I am at is not quite good enough. I need more. Bhavatana is not directed to direct sense experience. Bhavatana is directed to things like um, renown, power, control, love, um, things that are abstract. Yeah. So 
things that are abstract can be quite powerfully evocative of our desire. You know, if you look at what makes people, how hard people work to gain, say, control or security or to gain love, how much people are prepared to really work to find fame. Yeah. So much desire is geared into these abstract qualities which, of which we do not have enough. Who really has enough money? Yeah. Or enough samadhi for that matter, that's even worse. <laughs> yeah. So the second type of desire which we invest a lot states is the, it's the oral position. Where I am is not enough, please more. Yeah. And the focus is these abstract qualities I've just outlined. The third type of desire is more or less the opposite of the second. It says, as things are is too much. Yeah? This needs to go. This needs to stop. This needs to be prohibited, forbidden, shot to the moon, cut off, locked up, you know, annihilated. The third type of desire is a desire that wants to get rid of things. Yeah? And, you know, who hasn't been there? Who hasn't wanted to get rid of noises or hunger or people or places or governments or, you know. Um, sometimes it's harmless, you know. You're sitting there, you're brushing your teeth, you're squeezing the last bit of toothpaste out of your tube and uh, you decide it's now empty and you're going to chuck it away, yeah. An ugly thing out of sight, yeah. And you've, you've gotten rid of it, yeah. And you feel a little bit better, you know. The world is a little bit more clean. This is a sort of harmless type of vibhavatanha, as it is called. Uh, there are more self-destructive forms of this, which I think John broached this briefly. Uh, in its extreme form, obviously, are totally self-destructive. They have to do with the wish to annihilate oneself. Yeah. So these are forms of desire, and I think it's important if you now sit for a couple of days and you recognize certain patterns of thought will recur, you know. Some of our thinking is original and genuinely spontaneous and um, novel. Uh, but much of our thinking, I'm not sure how it is with you, but in my case, uh, it can be remarkably trite and repetitive. And, um, you know, things I've chewed a hundred times or even more than a hundred, more than I'd like to admit anyway. <laughs> so... We begin to recognize a certain dynamic or certain patterns, and it may be well uh, useful to ask yourself whether you recognize some of these hindrances. That's the reason we talk about them. Whether you recognize behind a specific thought pattern, which has always a story, which is always a rationale, you know, is convincing, and it talks to you in some ways. My, my thought patterns, they want something, you know. They speak to me. They say, hey, I'm important. Believe me, you know, do something. Don't just sit here, you know, uh, or think me to the end. Yeah? <laughs> so they basically, they appeal to me. They, there, is a, there is an appeal there to do something, at least to kind of deal with me. Yeah? Take me serious, talk to me, argue with me, believe me, uh, follow me. I'll take you to peace. Yeah? I'm the last one of my species. 
be careful. Yeah, things like. So, and as soon as you enter, obviously, you know, the carousel goes on into the next round. So, if you notice thought patterns recurring, it may as well be interesting to just kind of probe and see, well, that kind of thought pattern, of which I may feel I'm a victim of, actually, could it be that I feed this in some way? Could it be that by pursuing happy feelings, warm feelings, pleasant feelings, uh, agreeable feelings, could it be that my seeking, that feeling, actually uh, propels the thought? Could it be the case? The same holds true for the second of the hindrances, obviously. Ill will, this sounds like big. You know, ill will is really, sounds big. But actually, ill will can be quite, you know, reasonable. It can be quite rational, you know. It may, something, may, may be something in your perceptual process. Often it, it sounds even constructive, or, or it sounds kind of on the ball. You stand there in the, in the line, wait till it's your turn to get food, and then something in your mind goes, wow, she's, she's quite, taking quite a lot, isn't she? Yeah, yeah. Well, two spoons, wow. <laughs> not sure it's enough for all of them, two spoons. All of these hundred people here take two spoons, huh? Wonder. Yeah, it's a bit selfish, isn't it? Yeah. Um, if you have any diagnostic vocabulary, this is fantastic. You know, this is the moment this all kicks in. You know, if you happen to be a psychotherapist and you don't have people who eat two spoons, you have basically well, bulimics. You know, <laughs> or if somebody does slightly uh, slowed down Burmese walking meditation, and you have you're kind of surrounded by escaped catatonics from the psychiatric <laughs> ward. You know, anything you know can kick in and with the slight coloring of aversion or anger or just sometimes it's kind of, it's a, a very rudimentary sense of not wanting, not getting close, not allowing to go near. Yeah? If we take this meta phrase from today, uh, going near to voluntarily turning towards and going near to something as a genuine gesture of metta, then ill will is the opposite of that. It's a distancing, it's a moving away, and there's always a little self-creation in it by identifying somebody or something that I am averse against, I slightly elevate myself. Yeah? There is a, a lot of self-creation in aversion and uh, pushing away and um, annoyance. All this generally makes a statement and say, I am not like this. Thank God I am not like this. I want to distance and I'm obviously better. Yeah. The implicit statement, if I am capable of seeing somebody else's fault, is I do not have that fault. Yeah. I am better than this. Although you will probably find it rarely spelled out in that clarity. But nevertheless, the distinct selfing that is, you know, coming out of aversion is you feel better by pointing out what they're doing wrong, where they are goofing off, where they are, you know, shameless. You suddenly become a little more smug and better. So ill will often is not discernible in the storyline, you know, 
much of these hindrances are not so easily discernible in the storyline. For me, they're more discernible in the tone of voice that speaks to me. Yeah. I can hear the, I can hear the pitch, you know. Sometimes it's whining, sometimes it's complaining, sometimes it's just grumbling, sometimes it's because it says kind of things like, you know, no smiles before nine o'clock, you know, or I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna like anybody. You know, I wish you people were all gone. You are the meditation hindrances, you know, five, <laughs> five meditation hindrances, hundreds of them, you know. <laughs> yeah. So if you notice such things, acknowledge this is not a personal failure or this is not, you know, this is not a curse or this is not 100 meditation hindrances milling around you and disturbing, ruining your practice or so. This is the meditation hindrance of ill will that has reared its head in your practice. Yeah. Um, Western culture is very good at particularly that second hindrance. Um, for some reason, we seem to have cultivated um, that type of hindrance a lot more than I have encountered in Asian cultures. We seem to be good at hating. Uh, hating ourselves, obviously, hating others, hating places, hating institution, hating for the, for the hell of it, basically. Yeah? <laughs> because it somehow, it solidifies our self, our sense of self. You know? If I'm really a good hater, uh, although this is an unpleasant experience, it kind of reassuringly solidifies my being different. It reassures me in my position. There I am, hating the universe. Yeah? The third hindrance is complex. On one hand, it's a, at the first glance, it's, it's an honest hindrance. You know, it's, it's not about thought. It's about sleepiness and drowsiness and stuporific states. So it's one of the honest hindrances that does not deal with cognitive phenomena. Sleepiness can have many reasons. You know, there is a kind of honorable exhaustion. You arrive, you know, come from a busy life. Part of you just wants to recuperate. Your body has the intelligence and your mind has the intelligence to recognize this is safe here. You're fed, you're housed. People are not going to do bad things to you. So here would be a place you could relax. So let's relax. And you know, it's that place you can't hold. You just kind of, you go into a big compensation, relaxation, yeah? What you have lived too fast previously, you're going to compensate now by just saying, conking out, spacing out, zonking out, whatever you tend to do. Just kind of go into sort of a stupor. That is a compensatory type of fatigue many people experience when they come off their jobs, off their busy lives, and they land. Um, and it's good to recognize this. It's good to know that this is a, cell, a healthy sign. Yeah? Your system is recuperating and realizes this is possible. Obviously, it's not very helpful for waking up and profound insights and such like, but it's understandable. And usually, people come out of it reasonably quickly. There are other types of um, tinamida that have to do with... Um, not wanting to be here, for example. Yeah? Sometimes our sleepiness is due to subtle aversion, non-acknowledged aversion. 
That's the type of sleepiness that sets in when you're bright awake. You go to the meditation hall and then somebody says, meditate, and suddenly you start feeling heavy, you know, really badly heavy, and things go hazy, and you, maybe you start sweating, or the next moment is you kind of, you have sort of gentle rocking, rocking movement in your body, and you realize uh, you're dozing, yeah. Bell rings, and after a short moment, you're bright awake. You go out for walking meditation. Yeah. If that happens a couple of times, then maybe something with your sleepiness is meditation-specific. It is no longer sheer exhaustion. So be worth actually identifying what you are doing with yourself when you try to meditate. Sometimes our sleepiness has to do with the lack of precision in terms of what we want to do. It has maybe to do with a lack of precision in our meditation object or in a lack of clarity um, as to our intention of what we practice and how we go about it. Sometimes this is probably not the case here is, you know, in the winter, particularly people in early in the morning come out of bed, uh, meditation hall, they pull up their blankets. and Basically, the whole system says, go back to where it's warm, where it's safe, where it's soft, where it's cushy. Yeah. So they kind of pull up their blankets a bit further and they kind of curl a bit and just wait till it stops, till the world stops hurting. Yeah. Basically, the organism seeking the comfort of the bed we have just left. Sometimes that stupor has to do with willfulness. As some, a, a group of people, meditators, particularly willful meditators, experience a type of sleepiness that is the, 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 the mind's reaction, the psyche's reaction to a bolshi or bossy sort of uh, ambitious meditator. You know, something in us that just kind of flattens the resistances and drags me along into the meditation hall, you know, willfully, and wants to force that process of meditation on my system. That, in part, resists that process. And I can drag it in the meditation room. I can make it sit up in the morning. I can make it go on retreats, but I can't make it stay awake. Yeah? I need the cooperation of those parts of mind that resist. And if I have willfully, uh, you know, frog-marched them into that meditative situation uh, in which I need to relax for the mind to become more quiet, at that moment, some of those resistances may rear their head, yeah? may rear their heads and start to say, okay, she can drag me in here, she can do that sort of thing to me, she can make me sacrifice my holidays, but she cannot make me stay awake. I'm not cooperating. <laughs> yeah? And you go into sort of a stuporific state. Yeah? I'm just going to bear it, grit my teeth, and just kind of roll in. Yeah? So sometimes if we struggle with sleepiness, and to be honest with you, I wouldn't really take any meditator very serious if he or she hadn't met sleepiness. Sooner or later in their meditative career, they will meet that uh, obstacle. It's so big and it, has so, it can feed from so many sources. I would expect anybody who is a genuine meditator 
at some stage to wrestle with that hindrance. Yeah. Have I told you these is, hindrances are the things you experience before you have jhanas? <laughs> yeah. So the honest question is not which one uh, do I have them? Yeah. The honest question is which one do I have? Yeah. Which one is dominant? Which one is at play now? Um, so sleepiness, consider when you struggle with sleepiness, what type of sleepiness do you have? You know, um, the, I wish I could give you clean and neat uh, tricks to cope with those hindrances. The truth is, the tricks don't really work for very long. They're all sort of band-aids. They're all kind of uh, superficial tricks that work. The real resolution of these hindrances is in your lives. Yeah? We need to come to terms with things we have not acknowledged. We need to learn things we have not developed. And we need to give up things that do not help us. Yeah? And this is not something you can do as part of your meditation technique. You can use uh, forms of intentionality, giving up, bringing energy in, you know, massaging your earlobes when you're sleepy, standing up, things like that you can do. But on the whole, you will probably need to resolve the root or uproot that hindrance in, in the larger sphere of your whole lives rather than just your meditative experience. Dinamida is a big one. So if you meet uh, sleepiness and drowsiness, this is necessary that you do something. You know? Some of the hindrances, if you don't do something, uh, you have already won almost half the, half the game. Yeah? If you feel thoughts arising that are tinged uh, with desire or with ill will, and you don't act much as one already by your simple inaction. If you do the same inaction when you're sleepy, nothing is won. Contrary, you know, sleepiness will win if you don't do things. Sleepiness needs engaging with. And sleepiness is shameful. We're here in a, pro in a program that is geared to awakening. We're public, <laughs> yeah? And sleepiness is a shameful thing, so we don't want to have it, yeah? So if we kind of, you know... We fall off our little baton, you know, and kind of say, oh, so nobody's seen it, thank God. <laughs> Pull ourselves together and kind of go into a sort of rigidified uh, posture only uh, 25 seconds later to kind of collapse in a heap again. Yeah? <laughs> so when we go into sort of an uh, oscillation between willful pulling ourselves together and helpless collapses, and this is... Um, unhelpful. It's not pleasant, it doesn't uh, do our self-esteem very well, and uh, it is not really helpful with the condition. So we, we need to acknowledge. One of the first things that is crucial with all of these hindrances is that we acknowledge, that we recognize the hindrance behind a specific pattern. Yeah. If it is a hindrance that comes with thought, that behind the thought we recognize the hindrance rather than believing the thought and wrestle with the thought and leave the hindrance that comes, uh, that propels that thought, leave it un unaddressed. So how can I address sleepiness? Well, obviously I can acknowledge that this sets in. 
Sleepiness is a process and we do not fall asleep all at once. Our senses fall asleep one after the other. The first one to go is our sense of balance. The last one to go is our sense of hearing. So from that alone, you know, if I ring the bell, every sleeper will get up and walk out of the room. You know? <laughs> I've never, never in all those years of meditation, <laughs> sitting amongst sleepers, have I experienced that somebody hadn't heard the bell. You know? Particularly the meal bell, you know. <laughs> so the first sense to go is my sense of balance. Since we're sitting upright, it is very likely that your posture is going to give away some changes. Yeah? A kind of, there are many ways of kind of giving away, you know, kind of a hardening here in the upper chest, um, rolling of your shoulders, sort of gentle people nod a little bit or kind of just lean. Yeah, there's many different techniques. <laughs> yeah. Some very original ones kind of backwards over your hip. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, kind of very discreet, sort of aristocratic, sort of. <laughs> yeah. Or more sort of proletarian sways, you know. You will see many, you'll see many, if you look at retreats and meditators, you see many, many different temperaments and styles of falling asleep. But all of them display some postural changes. So if you acknowledge, say, and I would suggest this is quite a, a kind of homework, that you actually learn to recognize the physical anchor symptoms of how sleepiness feels in your body. You will have to find it out for yourself. I can tell you what it is for me. I have a sort of uh, leaden streaming sensation around my eyes and I feel uh, something in my breath becomes brittle and hard and it goes less deep. Um, I sense a kind of tension around my, the base of my neck and something happens up in my shoulders. Yeah, So a sort of solidification of my uh, body sense. And I know these are telltale signs, something is happening here. If I just listen to what my mind says, then it says maybe something else. It says maybe, oh, it's finally getting peaceful. Now the edge is gone, really. This is, oh, isn't it? That's what Buddhism is about, isn't it? It's peace. <laughs> yeah. But then it says, yeah, okay, this is, we're getting closer. <laughs> did take me long, did it? Yeah. Oh. <laughs> Must be neither perception nor non-perception, you know. <laughs> so, so, you know, if you, if you listen to your mind, it will never tell you that you're going to sleep. Yeah? <laughs> it, it will just seamlessly go over into dream world, yeah? Um, the sleepiness and drowsiness is associated with the third... Uh, poison of mind with, with um, ignorance. Yeah? And ignorance does not declare itself. That's, one of, that's why it is tricky. If you're angry or if you're greedy, you know, after a certain degree of intensity, all attempts to deny it is basically doomed to fail. You, know? you can't help yourself feeling that you, you know, you're, you're, you're enraged or you're completely besotted by something. You, you, you will notice. Yeah? But with uh, Hindrances that are connected with ignorance, they don't come. They don't declare themselves. 
They don't have a label around their neck saying, I'm ignorant. You know? So sleepiness can be tricky. It can feel, depending on how, how your mind is feeling normally. You know, if you're feeling a lot of anger and pain, then sleepiness can actually be really blissful. Yeah? It takes the edge off. It's sweet. It's fuzzy. It doesn't hurt. You know? So it can be actually quite attractive to be sleepy. If you're used to agitated, anxious mind states, then sleepiness may sound like an achievement. If you're haunted by desires and uh, insatiable fantasies, then sleepiness may actually sound sound a peaceful place to abide in. So don't underestimate that this can look more attractive than, than, uh, than maybe the eye. So it's important to recognize it, and where you can recognize it is in the body. Honest, sober acknowledgement. This is a body that feels sleepy. This is a breath that feels labored. This is a shoulder that wants to roll forward. This is a head that feels heavy. Yeah. And your willingness to be with that unpleasant experience, your willingness to stay with it and to breathe into it may actually determine whether you can tackle that hindrance. Maybe the humble acknowledgement is that right now your whole meditation practice consists of simply staying awake for the rest of the hour. Maybe that's it. And you know what? This may be good practice. It's humbling. It's not very refined. No lofty states. No penetrant insights. No big lights. Just staying awake with a body that is exhausted and tired and likes to drift off. And you have the humility and the precision and the patience to stay with that fatigued body and stay awake. Maybe this is your practice for that moment. Let me say something about the next one. Udacha Kokucha, this is a, a... a, double, a double-edged hindrance. The first part, udacha, is physical. It's restlessness. It's a kind of... It's a, the body's attempts to entertain itself. Basically, it's... Um, well, if you want the mythological version, it's basically Mara sends the boys round. Yeah? Mara, the uh, being who is not interested in us waking up, is doing trick on you and he gives you physical symptoms to uh, stop you from being becoming calm and quiet this may start with sort of the sensation of ants running up your legs or your neck or you may have weird uh, body perceptions kind of an ear bulging out suddenly <laughs> or or you may just feel a tremor, you know, so kind of something in your belly just tremors. There's a kind of continuous fibrillation going on. and You don't quite know what it is. As soon as you have a tiny bit of anxiety, this obviously flares up, yeah? And the more you know about bodies, the more you can fantasize, you know? If you know lots about bodies, you have lots of ideas what could go wrong, yeah? Yeah. You know, you have a little sort of pinch in your knee and you think, well, is this my inner or my outer meniscus? No, 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 this is, this is worse. This is a bucket handle tear. This is the beginning of a bucket handle tear. I can feel that. Whoa, I'm in for an arthroscopy. God, you know, that's going to ruin my life, my meditation, my tennis. You know, 
Who's going to bring the kid to the, you know? And you're gone, yeah? And the next thing is what you hear is kind of, you know, the loud hammering noise of the rescue helicopter that lands. <laughs> if you have these kind of fantasies, you know, any slightest bodily sensation can turn into a nightmare. Yeah? Sometimes they're not painful in themselves, or they're not even anxiety-laden. Sometimes they're just slightly awkward or unusual. They continually tear away your attention from the, dead, from the object of meditation you have determined. And it is a continuous temptation to actually do something, yeah? to kind of rejig your posture a little bit, relax a muscle, crack a little vertebrae, get that ri rid of that tension, or just kind of get that itch out. Nobody sees it, they're all there with closed eyes, you kind of, and then it's good for about five seconds, and then it continues somewhere else. Yeah? And you can do that for a whole hour, yeah? and you can even infect your other people sitting around you. They start <laughs> fidgeting around. and yeah, You've all been in meditation halls where that started, with a little sneeze at the back, at the back row there, and then you know, one after the other kind of <laughs> goes into a, a little sort of <clears throat> rasping exercise. <laughs> or, um, you know, the, the compulsion to swallow, you know. Yeah. And you're obviously con convinced that everybody in the room hears it, yeah. So you have a lot of physical symptoms, and then generally the mind obsesses with them in some way, tries to get rid of them, which usually reinforces them, which makes you feel victimized by them. And you can go in, into quite a bit of it. And if you want my wisdom, you know, hard-earned wisdom, if this happens, just don't move, yeah. Make yourself as comfortable as you can at the beginning and don't budge with it. Yeah? If it comes up, don't go for it. Don't try to relax. Don't try to fidget. Don't try to cough it off. You know, you can kind of um, spend 15 minutes just on the edge of a cough attack. Yeah? Try to force it down and every attempt to force it down is only going to reinforce it. So this, my cheapest advice, just let go as much, make yourself as comfortable as much at the beginning of a sit, and then see whether you can not react to this. I'm sure you have some experience with this. Yeah? Sometimes they're fascinating sensations, sometimes they're disturbing sensations, sometimes they're just annoying, sometimes they're just novel. So that would be the first part. The second part is a, is a mental hindrance, and it's called agitation, and it has something to do with, with remorse and with uh, a feeling that you have not lived up to your values. You have not lived up to uh, your ethical sensibilities, basically. Yeah. There is something in us, the Buddha and Socrates and Jesus, they all ag agreed that there is something in us that is capable of understanding what is good and what is not good. Yeah, we have, um, that's, Christians would call it a conscience. Yeah. There's an, a natural ethical sensibility in us and we can cheat a bit, yeah? but generally if we cheat, we, we get into trouble with ourselves. We get pricks of conscience or we feel remorse or we feel guilty and obviously we can uh, charge that with all kinds of uh, neurotic forms of guilt. But 
there is, at the base of our hearts, is something that is capable of understanding what is good and what is not good. And if we do not follow through with acting in ways that we recognize are good, either by deed or by omission, we may well feel bad about our actions and our behavior afterwards. So this type of agitation is connected to things we have done or not done, and we feel bad that we have done them or not done them. This is not a bad thing in itself, but it's a meditation hindrance, because right now we cannot fix this. Right now, our compulsive thinking around these themes uh, can take the form of flagellation, yeah? Um, or a kind of self-punishing streak can come up by repeating things in which we feel that we have done bad and we feel bad about having done bad. So we can um, really sacrifice all calm, all quiet of mind to some guilty um, circling or turning around a, a situation in our lives where we feel we have blundered yeah? or where we feel we have neglected something or acted out in ways we feel bad about ourselves. So this type of agitation is also something you can't fix. The only thing you can do is you can park it. You can try to let go of it and park it and promise yourself that you will, in a situation, in a, in a future time when it is possible to actually do something about, make amends, say an apology, uh, ritually do something to atone, uh, whatever, maybe you can do that then, but right now you're sitting here with a few other people meditating and you cannot do something about this other than park it and acknowledge this hurts, I have not done well, I need to change this and I need to forgive myself right now and I let, let myself give my attention to my meditative practice rather than to uh, feel guilty about this right now. The fifth of the hindrances is, in many ways, a big one. It's called doubt. Um, the Pali tradition distinguishes differing forms of doubt. This is an ethical doubt or a, a compulsive uh, quality of doubting. Yeah, there are many things I do not know. I'm not sure what, what I'll have for breakfast tomorrow morning. To be, and I, this is not a doubt. This is just a question mark in my mind. So... Question marks are not something that I can, that I suffer from, but a doubt is something is a question mark where I feel there shouldn't be a question mark. Yeah, you know? in my books, doubt is an emotion, an unpleasant emotion, an emotion that weakens all my capacity to act, that weakens my capacity to commit, that weakens my self-respect, that weakens me, my uh, my um, resolve. And it's highly unpleasant. You know, doubt, if you're familiar with this, is highly unpleasant. So one of the ways we distance ourselves from the unpleasant experience is we think about it. You know? We try to gain certainty of what is an unpleasant emotion by uh, a lot of thinking. We construe probability scenarios. We construe rationalizations. We construe uh, worlds of thought to help us overcome that doubt or bridge over that doubt or construct something on top of that doubt to make it go away. Now the truth is no amount of thinking really can 
get rid of a doubt. Yeah. Thought never wins against emotion. If push comes to shove, our emotions uh, are always more strong than our thoughts. So with doubt, this is particularly the case. Everything you know can potentially feed into a doubting process. All your competence, all your expertise, all your experience, all of this can feed into doubt. Yeah? And it's important that you recognize that the doubting mind is a doubting mind, because as soon as you feed it, this can flood you. Yeah? Doubt as an emotion is one of the big flooders, together with rage and with anxiety. If you have thought patterns that are <coughs> recurrent, if you have thought patterns that you sense are undermining you, that, you all, that always leave you paralyzed, that's one of the effects of doubt. It undermines your capacity to act. It undermines your capacity to find confidence. And obviously, it also undermines your capacity to become still. Yeah? Then it's worth recognizing the emotion that underpins that thought patterns. So all five of these hindrances um, are likely to be uh, on your plate if you sit for any length of time. Three and a half of those have something to do with thinking. Yeah? Sense desire, ill will, um, doubt, and the half of the number four, agitation, the agitation part of the fourth hindrances, the kukucha part, is also a type of thought. So if you feel that you're a victim of recurrent thought patterns, just kind of probe and see, well, is this doubt? Is this agitation? Is this greed? Is this ill will? Yeah. Just kind of do the sort of litmus test, hold in the paper and see, you know, okay, yeah. As soon as you recognize any of those hindrances, you will be relieved to know you don't need to deal with that thought individually. You don't need to deal with the specificity of that story. You don't need to pacify every individual doubt. Once you know this is doubt, you need to turn away from this. Yeah? Because you, it cannot be quelled by thinking more about it. Desire cannot be resolved by thinking about desire. Ill will cannot be quelled by thinking about ill will. These things can only be helped by an honest and sober acknowledgement, an assessment that this is that hindrance, and by turning away from it. Yeah. Now, obviously, you know, for sense desire, it helps to con contemplate uh, the disadvantages of desire. For ill will, it helps to practice metta. If it is not arisen ill will, if it is ill will that is already arisen, I find that contemplating aspects of compassion are more useful. You know, I can split myself less from other beings if I recognize they suffer like I suffer. They are afraid of pain like I am afraid of pain. I restore their humanity in my mind if I recognize them as suffering beings that seek happiness and try to avoid pain. And that makes me a lot less prone to ill will. If it is sleepiness, you will need to address locally that sleepiness by opening your eyes, by deepening your in-breath, by massaging your earlobes, maybe by standing up, by raising your arms, uh, by 
enduring, willingly enduring the sensations of sleepiness and take the sensations of sleepiness in the body as focus your, your attention. And you will need to investigate if the sleepiness is recurrent, what actually takes place. Yeah? This needs to be a question that is bigger than this one meditation session. For restlessness, I would, su- I would suggest a stoic approach. And for agitation, again, you need to be befriend that part in you that rebels against your actions or your omissions. And you need to cherish the sensitivity in your own heart that says you have done bad on this one or this one you feel regretful about. And you will need to park this and make a promise to yourself that you will address this issue when you go to the place or to the people in your life, you will need to address this. And doubt needs to be understood both in its consequences and in its food. Yeah? The food is thought. And as soon as you stop feeding that doubt, it loses its n- nourishment and it will be less strong. So I'd like to stop. I consider what the Buddha said. It is not about not having these hindrances. It's about um, does not know, as it really is, the way of escape from sense desires, the way of escape from ill will, the way of escape from sleepiness, the way of escape from agitation and restlessness, the way of escape from doubt. This is the bit to know. How do I find out what takes me away from these hindrances? This is the skill we need to practice, rather than simply trying to not have the hindrances. I would expect all of you to have hindrances. Before you have jhanas, I would expect all of you to have plenty of time in hindrances. And you need to figure out where this takes place in your practice. Honestly, soberly, without uh, judgment, but also without being too blue-eyed about it. So I hope... uh, More good news maybe tomorrow. (laughs) Good, let's just sit for a minute and then go walking. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.